Welcome to the Mama Sifid Podcast Birth Story Friday. In this week's episode, Julia is going to be sharing her two birth stories. She was preparing for a vaginal birth, but then found out that her baby was breached at 32 weeks. At 37 weeks, she opted for an ECV, but her baby did not tolerate the procedure, and she went in for a C-section that very day. For her next birth, she planned for a VBAC, and she did have a vaginal birth, but she really focused on changing her mindset and birth preparation around birth to have a more positive experience. Welcome to the Mama Safe Fit Podcast. This is Gina, perinatal fitness trainer and birth doula. And this is Roxanne, labor and delivery nurse and student midwife. And this is the Mama Safe Fit Podcast, where we empower you on your prenatal fitness, birth, and postpartum return to fitness journey. Our podcast shares how to move throughout your pregnancy to stay strong and comfortable. Pain is not a requirement of pregnancy. Understand the science of birth and how to approach recovery after birth. We share our personal experiences as mothers navigating the stage of lives, plus our professional expertise as birth workers and fitness professionals. Our goal is to help you feel confident as you navigate the perinatal timeframe for an empowering pregnancy, positive birth, and postpartum journey. We are glad to have you with us on this journey and that you've chosen us to support you. Welcome to the Mama Safe Fit Podcast. Today is Birth Story Friday. We have Juliet here who is going to be sharing her two birth stories. So thanks for being here, Juliet. Thank you for having me. So tell us about your first pregnancy and your birth. How did that all go? I became pregnant in January 2020, and I even kind of came at this already kind of a birth nerd. You know, I was kind of fascinated by not only the whole physical process, but also how it's treated in our healthcare system and by society and portrayed in movies and films. And so I kind of came in with this idea that, you know, I really want to experience birth and I'm going to study and research and work as hard as I can to make that happen. So I read all the books, you know, Ina May's Guide to Childbirth, Childbirth Without Fear, which is, you know, it reads a little antiquated these days, but it's, I found it interesting in terms of like the physiological process of, of birth and what's going on. I think I read a couple others like Gentle Birth and Active Birth, and I read a book about the female pelvis and, you know, so a lot of time and energy and resources put into prep and and Instagram too. I found you guys kind of late in the process, but there are a lot of there are a lot of people out there talking about natural birth and and coping mechanisms and and you guys come at it from a very like fitness and physiological standpoint, which I found really easy to understand. So yeah, I used all of that to try to set myself up in the best way possible. I even took a breastfeeding course by some like nurse midwife out of Australia, which was actually really great, but uh, maybe overkill, but I did it. I hired a doula and I made sure that I had the provider that I felt like would be most crucial and helpful to having the kind of birth and experience that I wanted to have in my area. Anyway, I mean, it was I felt like I was at the best place I could be without just going straight home birth midwife. So my goal was no intervention. I had read all the stats on our C-section rates too high and you know C-sections increase your chances that you're going to have a hard time breastfeeding and you baby bonding and it's just overall, you know, worse outcomes for the for the baby and mom. So, you know, my goal was low intervention and my pregnancy was really pretty normal. There was nothing really notable I stayed pretty active. I ran until about 24-ish weeks. Then I did a lot of walking. This was um, during COVID. So that was really helpful in terms of 
uh, staying active during the day. The only things that popped up was I think he measured a little bit big throughout the process. I had a ultrasound. I think at 20 weeks, he measured a little bit big, and they used that as an excuse for me to have another ultrasound at 32 weeks, which was ultimately a good thing, but we'll get to that. Uh, the other thing was I had a succenturiate lobe on my placenta, which, you know, when I looked at my placenta after it came out, it wasn't, you can hardly tell, but it was, that was an issue for a while. It required an extra transvaginal ultrasound, and like that was kind of an issue that was dealt with, but Anyway, I tried to arm myself with a lot of information, and I know positioning is huge and, and outcomes, so I, I spent a lot of time trying to be very balanced and stay in good positions for him to be in a good position. So that all brought me to my 32-week ultrasound, which was put on the books because he had measured a little bit large, but that's when we found out he was breech. And he was frank breech, in like the full pike position. His little legs were outstretched. His little heel would like dig up into the bottom of my ribs and push out of my belly. I just remember that feeling so strongly. And his little head was just stuck up in my ribs. And that's where he was. And I kind of hadn't known his position until then. I was, you know, it's like, maybe he's up, maybe he's down. I can't really tell. My midwife had kind of externally felt around 30 weeks. And she was like, I think he's head down. But looking back, she was feeling like his little butt as his head and his head as his butt. So from that point on, my focus just shifted from this birth that I had in mind with low intervention to how do I get this baby to turn? So that kicked off a whole new stream of effort. So obviously spinning babies, I spent a lot of time, a lot of time upside down. Moxibustion, I did chiropractic work, I did a massage. This was not recommended, but I did cry every day, I think, <laughs> because so it was so devastating to, to me that like all that I had worked for was looked like it was being ripped away and I was losing, not control, control is a, har a, a, you know, a harsh word, but like, you know, losing the fact that I had put in a lot of work to like try to influence the outcome in a certain way. And it was just like, nope. I, I didn't really look into vaginal breech birth as an option. The hospital that I was going to, I know that they don't do it as, as like a policy. And I kind of felt like I was already the provider I wanted to be with. So the plan was, you know, let's, get to 37 weeks. That's when we can do an ECV. And my thought was, let's do the ECV as soon as we can at 37 weeks, because he is as small as he'll be. He'll only get bigger from there. And if he's smaller, I guess we have more room to turn him. So, you know, I kind of waited out from 32 to 37 weeks, just keep doing everything I was doing to try to get him to turn, you know, really struggled a lot with like the why me, why, why am I in like the 3% of people who have a breech baby at term? And I had been doing this thing to prepare myself for birth, which was I would think about the list of people that I had known in my life who had who had birthed and birthed naturally. And I kind of used it like a mantra almost, you know, like so-and-so did it. My sister did it. My mother did, you know, you and then that had flipped and become why me? Why did so-and-so get to have a head down baby? Why did so and so it was it was a lot, it was a big mental challenge that um I really struggled to come over overcome. So we get to 37 weeks, and for my scheduled ECV at the hospital, I was, of course, you know, not allowed to eat or drink that day, and I showed up at 11 a.m. to go back, and uh, you, the way they have you do it is you go up to the OB triage, you kind of sit in triage for a while while they hook you up to monitors, and you basically wait until someone is available, some OB is available to come do the ECV, which they usually do in the triage room. So as I'm sitting in triage 
they uh, have the contraction monitor and the and the fetal heart monitor, and we're really just fine. We're just hanging out. And then I had seen on the monitor that my the baby's heart rate went down to like the 90s. And so I'm watching it because I I know just enough to make myself dangerous, I guess, that I know that that's, that's pretty low. The nurse is working on, I think, getting an IV or doing something. And I'm, you know, I'm like, you know, I see his heart rate's dropping. And she's like, yeah, you know, we'll get you to roll over in a minute. Because I was laying kind of on my back, slightly reclined. I'm just watching his heart rate. It's not coming up. It's like it's a long D-cell. And then all of a sudden, I'm in a teaching hospital, by the way. This is a hospital where there's a whole bank of monitors and all the the OBs, the OB residents, the nurses, nurses, students are kind of in there. And this happened to be a slow day in the unit. So like three people rushed in the door and came into this situation where I'm just sitting there like nothing's happening except for I'm kind of watching this monitor and three people rush in like, what is going on? We need to act quickly. This is a very concerning D-cell. And he had gotten down into the 90s and it had stayed there for, I think, like six minutes. Like it took a long time for his heart rate to come come back up. They got me over on my left side. And then that kicked off a lot of discussion and decision making about how the rest of the day would go. The midwife group that I see practices out of their own office, but they, you know, they see patients deliver babies in, in this university hospital. And so the midwife on call was there, and she and I talked for a long time about the fact that this D-cell was concerning, the fact that we don't know how often these are happening, when they're happening, why they're happening. Maybe this was the only one that ever happened, but we don't know. And the fact that they now had it on a monitor was concerning. And to her credit, I pushed back pretty hard on, you know, what if I stay for 24 hours of monitoring and then go home? And then maybe I'll come back in for an NST in a couple of days. You know, give me some options here. And and I guess, you know, ultimately she said, I'm not going to make you sign out AMA, but these are the risks we're looking at. We don't know why these are happening. We know that each time they do happen, he does, he is getting less oxygen. And so their recommendation was if the ECV is successful, stay and have an induction. If it's not successful, to proceed to a C-section that day. So I thought about it and... I ultimately elected to not leave, uh, not against, a, uh, not AMA, but that, okay, let's try the ECV. Let's hopefully get him turned. Let's, let's, I'm on board with the induction afterwards. And if not, I guess we'll do it at C-section. And then, you know, even from that point, I'm already in kind of like disbelief that this is actually going to happen this way. So with the ECV, I did elect to get an epidural. At that point, I was like, all right, I need to do everything I can to hopefully make this ECV work and hopefully get this baby out, not by a C-section. So I got the epidural and we had moved into a labor and delivery suite for the ECV. And since this is a teaching hospital, they had asked me, can some OB residents and nursing students come in and watch the ECV? And I think it's kind of cool to be a part of a teaching hospital. I, I think that whole process is kind of great. So I said, sure. So the room got packed with people. And so the OB gets set. It was it was the one woman OB who I just met that day, but she was great. And then two OB residents. And they have to get in there to turn those babies from the outside. And he is, his little butt was so much in my pelvis that it felt like they were really getting in there to try to get him to turn. And it felt like they had kind of started to get his little butt out of there. 
And then they checked with the ultrasound and his heart rate just tanked again. And again, took like six minutes to come back up. So she was like, I'm not comfortable continuing on because we know that this is causing him stress. I remember just feeling so angry. <laughs> I was so angry that like, you know, everything had been ripped away. And, and the, I think the OB could tell because I remember her coming up to like the head of the bed as I'm sitting there with the oxygen mask on, just staring off in my angry little trance. And she said, you know, VBACs are a possibility, right? And I was like, I know they're theoretically possible. <laughs> you know, I was just not in the mood, I suppose. So it was uh, C-section time. They really, they ramped up the epidural and it took a long time for me to really get uh, numb from that, but they ramped it up and eventually we were taken back to the operating room and I really hated the whole process of of just laying on that table and having the baby pulled out of me. I was not, you know, it felt like I was very much not involved in the whole process. And all the while I had this, un, this like deep feeling that like I could have done it. I could have gotten him out. I know I could have birthed a baby. You know, this is just, I don't want this to happen. Why is this happening to me? And I was also shaking the whole time that I was on the table. Luckily my arms weren't tied down, but I was just shaking uncontrollably and I was so hot. So I remember that was, that was really uncomfortable. And luckily the C-section, I had a few weeks before gone for a walk with a friend of mine who had had a C-section a couple months before. So I kind of, you know, said, I'm not, I don't want to put this out into the universe that this is going to happen to me, but tell me, tell me everything. Tell me how it goes. Tell me what the healing's like. And so she did a really great job of giving me a heads up, you know, forewarning me also, which I found helpful. Like, look, the pain is kind of the worst, like 24 to 48 hours after birth. She's like, if you, if it's important to you to avoid like heavy pain killers, just know it's possible. I did it, you know? And so I'm, I'm thinking about this as I'm laying on the table, like, okay, the, the focus has shifted. This is now our, this is now our focus to, you know, they're going to get the baby out and then we just got to focus on healing and making sure breastfeeding goes okay. And my midwife to her credit did such a great job of narrating everything. She was like, all right, now they're, they're cutting you open. Now they're, they're getting baby out. They're taking baby back. Came and told me, I think his first APGAR was a little concerning, but keeping me updated on the whole process because it, I was surprised at how long it took. It was very fast to get baby out, but then it was like, I don't know, 45 minutes or more to get me sewn up and get me moved to recovery. And we did not do, you know, immediate skin to skin. I, I think he required a little more work to get him breathing and get him, you know, up to speed. And my midwife took pictures, which was like the best thing. You know, she was like, do you want pictures? And uh, me still angry was like, I don't, I don't know. I just don't know. And she's like, well, I'll just take them and you can delete them. And ultimately those have been like the best thing is those pictures. I just, I love to look at them as he's coming out. They're so great. So I finally get back. I think he was born at like 6.33 in the, in the evening. And then I finally get back to recovery a little after eight and I can finally hold him. I just immediately unwrapped him and put him under my hospital gown. And I was like, you're mine. You're my little boy. So all the fears that I had about breastfeeding, not getting off to a great start and, you know, us bonding was not an issue at all. Ultimately, it really went fine. I do remember doing a lot of hand expression and syringe feeding in the hospital, but we got home, we, we worked on our latch and it, it really, it really was okay. You know, all of that was was not really anything that I should have been concerned about. So my relationship with him was great. I did leave the whole process still feeling like 
angry at that loss of control. And I even started out like, you know, never doing this again. This is we're we're one child family. We're not doing it again. And then that kind of grew to, okay, all right, maybe we'll do it again. But I'm just going to immediately schedule a C-section, not even going to try for a V-back because I can't handle all the work I did. And then for that to just be ripped away. And then that grew into, okay, we'll try a V-back, but if it doesn't happen, it's fine. I'm not going to have my heart set on it. And then it was that like eventually became V-back or bust. <laughs> so, so that was kind of my, my own evolution there. And then about, I think it was like 10 weeks after my first was born, I took your, your C-section scar mobilization webinar, which was really helpful. And I think at that time, there is a lot of emotion around the scar, which you guys talk about. I think at that time I could touch it, but not do much else. And it felt so tight and so tethered, especially on like the bottom of the incision. So I found different ways to kind of work in those stretches. One of which was I found if I lay on my side instead of flat on my back, that kind of helped everything loosen up. And then I could kind of get in there more to do more stretching. But anyway, that was that was really, really helpful. And I, I continued it throughout my pregnancy, not not even that often, I would say maybe once every few weeks, but it, it was something that I did frequently that I feel like did help. That's usually something that we recommend for folks that are wanting a VBAC, even if you're planning a scheduled C-section, is to do this scar mobilization because it's going to help with the comfort so much throughout your pregnancy. And it's also going to help remove that those like adhesions that could potentially affect baby's position if you are wanting that vaginal birth as well. So I'm glad you did do it throughout your pregnancy. Yeah, even as it got harder with your belly so tight and big <laughs> you're trying to get under there to mess with that scar <laughs> but those and those scars are so weird I remember having like a lot of burning and a lot of like nerve pain as it was healing and coming back together and even after my second baby healing which was not a c-section I had just that strange nerve pain you know and every once in a while I still have it so you always you always deal with it it's always something you have to have to work with yeah, I always feel bad when folks ask us, like, how long do I have to do this mobilization? And I'm like, kind of forever. Yeah. Not as frequently as the beginning, but it's kind of a forever thing, um, which is, I, I don't know if that's defeating to, like, hear, but I'm like, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of like, how long do I have to work out if I want to be, you know, maintain strength and all that? Well, forever. You know, it's <laughs> forever. <laughs> Can I just do one workout and we call that good? No? Yeah, right. All right. <laughs> Let's talk about your second pregnancy and birth. So what did you do to kind of help heal mentally from your first birth before you went into your second pregnancy? Or was that just kind of something that you didn't quite heal from until your VBAC happened? I think a little bit of both. One of the things that helped me the most, it was hearing birth stories. And that's partly why I wanted to share mine. I'm not a big sharer in general, but, you know, they helped me so much. Particularly, I would listen to VBAC stories. I would kind of pick and choose and find those. And then there are a couple of podcasts that do VBAC only stories. So I'd listen to VBAC stories and it was really helpful and validating to hear people describe something similar to what I felt, you know, the anger at like all this work I did. And then it was just ripped away like, sweetie, what you want doesn't matter. You're our piece of meat. We don't deliver babies vaginally. If they're breached, we're going to cut you open, you know. And I even listened to CBAC stories and to hear people process their first cesarean, a second cesarean, that was really helpful to me. That was probably the the most of what I what I did really were birth stories. And then I, you know, I really had to take a break from all of like the birth accounts and pregnancy accounts I followed to just kind of let everything rest for a while. So 
I think that was the most helpful thing that I did. And I feel I still sometimes listen to birth stories just because I, you know, it's, it's always a ride, you know, it's just, it's like a great story every time. So tell me about your second pregnancy and let's get into your VBAC birth story then. Second pregnancy, everything again was, you know, quote unquote normal. The, the things that I was dealing with this time were I was advanced paternal age because I would be delivering when I was. The geriatric <laughs> pregnancy. <laughs> yeah, simply because by the time I was going to be birthing, I was going to have achieved the age of 35, my oh my. And um, <laughs> so that and then he kind of measured big from the beginning. You know, I, I think even at like his first ultrasound, he was like already a little bit ahead of of where he was. And I was certain about my dates, but he was just always kind of a kind of a bigger guy. That and having a, a prior cesarean, I felt like were kind of two scarlet letters that followed me along my process. And and I did a lot of work to be educated on what actually were concerns and what were concerns that providers put out there that are that maybe aren't supported by the evidence or are not as as big of a concern. So I was with this midwife group that I knew was going to be the best choice for me, at least in the area I am without doing a home birth midwife again. They were great with me the whole time. So I was aware of the VBAC scaries, you know, the the chance of uterine rupture and the signs of uterine rupture and the the VBAC calculator that the OBs use and how much to read into that percentage and how much not. Because I consistently heard, you're such a great candidate. And I knew that they were going to recommend at 36 weeks a, con- a consult with a high-risk OB at this teaching university hospital, you know, and so I knew that that was going to be a big time for them to throw all the scaries at me, which it was, but I was able to handle it by that time. So everything was very normal. I even think he was breech at 20 weeks, but, you know, I didn't really worry about it. At 36 weeks, we do an ultrasound. He is head down, which I could not have been more thankful for. That was like such a consistent worry and obsession. <laughs> he still measured big. I think at 36 weeks, they guessed him to be around seven pounds. The consult with the high-risk OB predictably went as her saying, I think you should deliver before 39 weeks. You're uh, advanced maternal age, so you usually have bigger babies. Every day from now on, he's going to get bigger and bigger. He's already pretty big. I feel like because I had done so much prep, I was able to just take that in and say, okay, you know, thank you for your thoughts. You know, I'm just going to keep going. And at the end, this high-risk obese says, all right, now we're going to do weekly NSTs, which was never something we had ever talked about or discussed. The midwives that whole time had just been, you know, like, you're great. We're not going to induce you immediately at 39 weeks. We'll let you go to 41 and then we'll talk about it. So when I get to see the midwife, I'm like, what's this deal with, with weekly NSTs now? And they're like, oh, don't worry about that. that. That OB just doesn't know how we work. We're different. We're going to keep going. You're fine. You know, so it's just so great that you kind of get the best of both worlds of like this big big, powerful teaching hospital, but these midwives are like, no, no, that's not how we do it. You're fine. We're not going to do weekly NSTs. Just keep coming back every week and you'll be good to go. So I just continued on. And, you know, I did always have in the back of my mind that, you know, he is kind of big. I The VBAC is the priority. So if I could just please, please, please have my labor start before my due date, just please, as soon as possible, let's just get labor going. And my prep for labor this time was tough because all of the affirmations and meditations I had used the first time around really rang hollow because it was things like my body's made to birth and my baby and I work well together. And you're like, that's not true. (laughs) It was breached last time. So 
that was a hard mental hurdle for me to get over. And so I did a lot more like breathing, music and meditations. And instead of writing out a first plan, what I did this time, which I really felt like worked well for me in the way I think is I kind of wrote out a list of priorities in kind of a flow chart, you know, so number one priority is a VBAC. And then the flow chart would start like, okay, if I need to get induced, then these are my preferences. This is how I would like that to go. If I need to get an epidural, I still want to be able to move around. I still want to, you know, so it's helpful for me to think about not just avoid epidural at all costs, but like, all right, that's a tool in the toolbox. If we have to go that route, this is what I'm still hoping to hold on to in that process. So I started eating six dates a day and I drank all the raspberry tea and I did evening primrose oil. Eventually I started pumping. I don't remember if that was 37 or 38 weeks, but it was, I was trying to do everything to naturally just nudge labor along and none of it worked. And I was so sad to see my 40 week appointment appear. So I was like, man, I hope, I really hope to never, ever get here. (laughs) That's also been me all of my pregnancies. I don't know why. Like I always go way past my due date, but I'm like, maybe this time is different. This time I will go early. (laughs) I don't. It's such a, you know, and you tell, you try to tell yourself this is an artificial date. This is just a random date on the calendar. Don't too much, put too much stock into it, but man. (laughs) And I, you know, what I didn't want was then to be, to start to feel like the creep of the, you know, hospital policies of, you know, we want this and this to happen and and you need to have had your baby by now. And I didn't want to deal with the talk of an induction, but so I go to my 40 week appointment and I think I'd had no signs of labor by this point. I think maybe one or two nights I would have like one contraction would wake me up and then nothing would happen. I, you know, have to go back to sleep or at least try to. And at my 40 week appointment, I'm like, well, I wanted low intervention. Goal is a VBAC. So consulting with my midwife, we ultimately decided to do a membrane sweep that day and cervical check. So she checked me. I was like at one, one and a half. She did a membrane sweep where she was like, I usually don't do these unless you're two or three, because I think that they're more helpful if you're two or three. But, you know, that was kind of what we elected to do. And then and then we decided I would come back in two days and see what was going on and, and proceed from there. So I remember going home and slept that night. And then the next morning, I um, woke up and just cried a lot because I was like, my VBAC is slipping away. <laughs> just cried. <laughs> That's my favorite induction <laughs> method, just sobbing. <laughs> what? And then since then, I've read about this phenomenon of like sometimes before labor starts you get this big emotional release of whatever you're holding on to and so I just you know silent cried in my bed trying not to wake my husband as I'm grieving this birth that is not lost but I have somehow convinced myself is probably lost and um, that was maybe the big emotional release I needed and then two days later or sorry one day later after that I go back to the midwives at 40 plus two Uh, that midwife I saw she was like if you want me to I can get like I can get a good sweep in there. And I was like, let's do it. Get in there. So she checks me. I'm like two to three and 50% effaced. She does a good sweep. The rest of that day, I kind of lose my mucus plug like in in spurts. It didn't all come out at once. And I'm like, you know, using that as reason to be hopeful. So that was on a Friday. And then at 1.30 in the morning the next day, I kind of woke up to some gentle contractions, just like period cramps, you know. They didn't just have one and stop. They just kind of kept coming. So I'm like, okay, let's just see where this goes. I couldn't sleep. So I did get up and I kind of leaned on a birth ball to try to stay comfortable. And I think my, you know, my biggest worry was like, please don't let this stop. Like, 
you know, let's let's get this underway. I don't want to have to approach 41 and all those all the questions and issues that come up. So I funny enough, I was using a contraction timer and that contraction timer. So it started at like, you know, 130 and then at like five, that thing was like, go to the hospital. And I'm like, that's for sure wrong. Cause I'm like fine. <laughs> and so I had to keep like telling the time, like, I'm not going to the hospital. Stop doing that. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> I will not thank you. <laughs> Mine did that too, to be in my first. And I went to the hospital because I was like, well, the app told me to go because I was like, I need to be in labor. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm glad you did not <laughs> listen to the app. <laughs> um, yes, it's a good thing. I would have been sent promptly home, which is not too big of a deal. I only live like a mile away. But at around 6 a.m., my contractions started to space out and got way less consistent and I got really tired. So I kind of started to doze off. And that lasted a little bit until I was able to call the midwives at like 7 a.m. to tell them what was happening. And they're like, great, that sounds promising. Just, you know, keep resting, do the mile circuit. My doula said the same thing. And with both of them, I'm like, are you sure I shouldn't do something really intense to try to like make this happen? And they were like, no, no, please rest. You need rest. That's what you should do. Drink a little bit. Can I jump on a trampoline? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let me yeah. go run five miles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank God they were like, no, please just rest. And it was, it was true, you know, if I got up and moved around, even to like walk to the bathroom, I would have all these Braxton Hicks and like the real contractions would just kind of subside. And if I laid down, you know, the Braxton Hicks wouldn't, I felt like they would like get in the way. And it's almost like the Braxton Hicks was like a, was like a muscle cramp when if what you want to do is like contract your bicep, but your bicep is cramping. You're like, well, one of those is very not helpful. And one of those feels helpful. So the not helpful thing could just stop. So I did rest a lot. I was able to eat and drink a little bit. Uh, for a couple of days leading up to this, I had had like no appetite and I was like first trimester level nausea. So looking back, I don't know if that was a very early sign of labor or what, but that was kind of an, an interesting thing that I noted. So this lasts all day. They're just, they're just inconsistent. Sometimes they're 10 minutes apart. Sometimes they're 12. Sometimes they're five. Sometimes they're eight. I'm resting. I'm trying to be patient. And then, you know, evening approaches and I'm like, oh my God, I have to go through a whole night of like trying to sleep through this. So we lay down, we're watching a show, and at 8.30 p.m., uh, with a contraction, my water breaks. And it felt like an industrial balloon had been popped. It was like the strangest feeling I've ever, I've ever had. Um, and it wasn't a gush, it was like a trickle, but even so, you're like, that was, that was something. And things got like pretty good, steady, rolling from there. My husband stayed in bed while I... I ran a bath and I, I tried to get comfortable in there, but I hated it. And I think that's... We have the worst tub in the world. And I think that's why, but the bath did not help. So I went back to leaning over my birth ball and just breathing. And that was kind of the best thing that I did. This whole time I'm texting with my doula, who's actually a, a backup doula who I had never met before because my real doula was in the hospital um, for kind of an emergency that took her in there for surgery. So I had a, a, a woman who luckily we hit it off really well it was hard to have a doula that you talk to the whole time and you really get to know and you formulate this plan. And then you're like, okay, all right, give me anyone then. I'll take anyone. That's goal is the VBAC. Give me anyone. I'll take it. So she got to our house around, I want to say 1030. She stayed with me for a couple contractions and she was like, all right, I think we should go to the hospital. So we loaded up in the car, drove a mile um, and got, I think we got into the hospital right around 11 
Luckily, by the time I got to triage, they were like, yeah, you're in labor. We're not going to mess around. We're going to get you a room. You know, we'll get you squared away. And this was kind of about the time that I really, like my memory gets really spotty and things are very dark. I must have had my eyes closed like quite a bit. And this was also around the time that I started to have this intense burning on the front of my abdomen and particularly along my incision. You know, the contractions themselves felt like, you know, period cramps are like super, super strong period cramps, maybe. But this burning was the strangest thing. And not only it was physically uncomfortable, but also it definitely played into that emotional element because one of the things with me wanting a VBAC and not wanting a second C-section was like the thought of someone cutting open that scar again just made my skin crawl. You know, I was like, please, no one touch the scar. No one touch it. I don't want anyone to touch it. And so the burning was kind of wearing me down psychologically, for sure. And I still don't know what it was about. I don't know. At the time, I, I wasn't nervous that it was uterine rupture because I, I had done enough research that I, I'm pretty sure the first one of the first signs of that is you're going to see the baby's heart rate drop and his heart rate was beautiful. So I don't know what this burning was. The hypothesis with my midwives is like maybe there was some scar tissue that had to be kind of stretched and broken up while, you know, your cervix is opening. But other than that, no one's really no one's really known. I could agree with that. I think it's just the stretching of the uterus because it's kind of being pulled up into the fundus and kind of pulling around BB that it, the scar is just being stretched from its normal position, even more so than during pregnancy. I've had a lot of my VBAC clients re like report a similar discomfort of like the like burning sensation. Um, and I think it's just from the scar stretching. Wow. I, that would, I would have loved to hear that. That's, that's so helpful. I, I, I'm the first and only person I've ever heard of saying that. That's so interesting. It makes sense. But that, that burning wore me down. The fact that I'd been up since 1 a.m. was really weighing heavily on me. And I'm keeping in mind, you know, like, the back is the priority. I'm not trying to be a hero to just, you know, show them exactly what I can say no to in the hospital. So I was like, all right, this is, this is getting tough. My coping mechanisms are really not working. If, she, if the midwife checks me and I am not at a nine, <laughs> then I'm going to elect for an epidural. And so she, um, this whole time I had been uh, over the head of the bed just as I had been on my birth ball. That was the most comfortable position. So to be checked, I had to lay on my back and that was the worst thing ever. She checks me and it kicks off this like contraction that was just very painful. And I felt like I couldn't move. And I was like, I'm calling it. We're doing an epidural. And they're like, are you sure? And I was like, epidural. <laughs> No, I know I said no to an IV and everything, but let's get that IV going and let's get that epidural because I'm going to, you know, I feel like I have a long way to go and this burning is wearing me down and we got to, you know, we got to reroute our our plan here. So from the time I said I, I wanted the epidural until I got it, I think was something like two hours, maybe two and a half hours. Um, they got the IV started, they got the fluids pushed. And so all that is to say, I, I almost want to say I maybe wrote out transition <laughs> waiting for this epidural, but I remember getting really like grunty and it, it felt good to like push against the contraction. So I remember asking my doula and my nurse like, is this okay <laughs> that I'm feeling like really, really grunty and pushy? And they're like, yeah, you're just in labor. It's fine. So that was a nice, you know, it was reassuring for them to say it's you're all right. Yeah. All the, all the sensation I had was just so frontal. I, I had like read a lot and, and considered a lot of 
coping mechanisms for back labor because you hear so much about back labor, but that was not my experience at all for whatever reason. And I had been worried about that because I had an anterior placenta and I was like, oh, maybe I'll have to deal with back labor. That was not an issue for me. So I got the epidural around 1.30 in the morning. And then as that took effect and I came out of my labor land and I looked around, you know, they they got the epidural in place. They turned off the lights. They gave me a peanut ball. I laid kind of on my side. And then it was like peace for a couple hours. It was it was very strange after all like the harriedness of getting to the hospital and, and figuring out what the plan was and getting me into a room. It was kind of peaceful. And I felt a little bit lucky to have this moment in labor to like appreciate all of this was going on. And like, okay, this may actually happen for me. <laughs> this might actually might actually get this baby out. You know, I had been concerned about his heart tones the whole time because that was such an issue before. And they were, luckily, they were good the whole time. But so midwife checks me at 3.30 in the morning. She's like, you're almost complete. You're like a nine and a half with a small lip. So just, you know, keep relaxing, keep doing what you're doing with the peanut ball, and I'll come and check you in an hour. So she comes back at like 4.45, and I'm complete. So this is a, a midwife with the practice, and she's like, I have an OB resident here who would like to attend. Do you mind if she shadows. And I was like, no, that's great. So they get they get all suited up and come in and I do a couple practice pushes on my side and sh- and the midwife's like, you're, you're going to be great. That'll be fine. What position do you want to push in? Thanks to you all, I had was very prepared to say, I want to be in an upright position. I want to be on my hands and knees and I'm definitely going to have knees in, ankles out and I'm going to breathe this baby out because it's, I mean, I tried to internalize that thought of like, you know, pushing is not like a, like a grit your teeth and hold in. It's like a, it's a simultaneous like effort and release at the same time. So I really, that was something I thought about so often and had kind of meditated on in preparation for this. Like, you know, we got to get the baby out without surgery. He's going to be a little bit big. Let's try to like maximize space and let's get this, let's get this baby out. So since I'd had the epidural, they're like, you can only push in a position that you can get into. We can't assist you up into hands and knees and then let you push from there. You have to do it. Luckily, uh, and I wish I could track down this anesthesiologist and hug him, but he gave me the epidural that allowed me to move. I was basically numb from like my belly to like my hips. I could feel everything else. I could move my legs. I could feel like everything else. So I got up into hands and knees and I was holding onto the bar at the top of the bed. I think I I breathed and pushed like three to four times with every contraction. And the providers were saying, you're getting the most out of the, the push when you're like sustaining effort at the bottom of the push. So that's what I concentrated on. And I could feel him moving lower and lower and lower. I don't know how it's possible to have this dream epidural where I didn't have like the burnt, like the burning was gone, but I could feel him moving lower and lower. I could I even remember feeling his little feet like kicking up into my ribs, kind of like trying to wiggle himself out, you know, and like turn. It was really cool. And eventually they're like, all right, you can, you can feel ahead if you want to. And so I reached down. I'm like, oh my God, I'm so close. I didn't think I'd get this far and this fast. And so I feel his wrinkly top of his little head so I push a few more times and I can tell, like I can feel, even though I didn't feel the ring of fire, I can feel that he, I'm, he's crowning. And then, so I knew that was a time to like slow down and relax. So I just kind of breathed and waited. And with the next contraction, I pushed and I felt his head come out and I feel a little break. And then I feel his shoulders and his whole body 
just come out. And I was just in absolute disbelief that I had gotten this baby out, that he was this big baby. And I'm an old woman with a C-section history. And um, I got him out in 48 minutes of pushing and it just felt It felt awesome. And it felt awesome that I delivered him with the midwife and a young woman OB resident who had never seen that before. She'd never seen someone push on hands and knees before. And it was just them and a nurse, my doula and my husband. And it was like the best, the best experience. It was, it was awesome. I pulled him up to my chest and I was like, hi, (laughs) hi, it's so nice to meet you. Not in a, not in an operating room. It was, it was the best thing. I had two like small bilateral labial tears, which they stitch up. They they weren't a big deal. Um, healing from those stitches is more uncomfortable than I expected as your body like heals and you're sitting on stitches the whole time. But it was it was really great. It felt very redemptive for sure. That's amazing. I I really liked how every time like more people came into your room, they asked permission. Like, can all these folks come in here? I I don't normally see that in teaching hospitals. And so I think that's that's really awesome. And that they were like, yeah, you get push in whatever position you want, but you have to get there. Like, that's amazing. That's that's super cool that they were advocating for you. Yeah, that's awesome. So how do you how do you feel about your births? Like since having your VBAC, do you look differently at your first C-section? I still look at it in terms of like, man, I wish that had never happened. I wish I didn't have to go through that. But it also was so it really forced me to look at a lot of different things and how I process stress and being out of control. And um, then to overcome that, to have a VBAC was, that felt very powerful in particular. And to choose that pass felt very strong and and kind of like some of, some of the control, you know, came back to me. And some of, you know, I keep saying control, but what I really mean is like some, some sort of like self-determination and, and the power to do that, you know. So the only thing, you know, I think back and as I'm thinking about that ECV, I think my plan was if he's if the second baby was breached, that I would maybe wait and maybe wouldn't have elected to do an ECV at 37 weeks. I maybe would have just waited a beat and just seen what happened. You know, maybe he would have turned. I don't know. But that's the only thing I think looking back, I'm like, my plan would have been a little different. Like, OK, give him a little more time and we'll see what kind of shakes out. I don't know if it's necessarily like wanting to stay in control, but wanting to be able to make decisions, even if they're not what you were wanting. Like, I don't know if your plan was to like never get an epidural, but at some point during your birth, you decided, hey, this is the better option for me. But you got to be the one to decide that. And so I think that's probably what the biggest difference between the two were was the first you kind of got told a little bit more of like what was going to happen Versus the second, like you got to make a lot of decisions throughout your pregnancy and during your birth. And I think that definitely demonstrates how different of an experience it was for you. But that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing your birth stories, both of them on the podcast. I know the folks that listen to it are definitely going to get a lot out of them, especially for folks who do resonate with how you feel about your C-section birth story and then being able to have a redemptive feedback, however that path goes. So Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you, Gina. In Juliet's story, she talks about how she had a birth path as opposed to a birth plan. And so what this means is you acknowledge that there are different scenarios that your birth can possibly navigate through and then understanding what your preferences are in each of those paths. So it still 
definitely planning for birth and it's still going over what your preferences are. But it's essentially acknowledging that your birth is not going to be this like linear path where if you put in a plan that this will happen and then this will happen and then this will happen. The moment that those things don't go in that order, your plan pretty much gets thrown out the window because you don't know what it is that you wanted in alternate scenarios. And so something that I think is really cool to do is to do a birth path. And it's almost like this decision map where you're exploring the different avenues or paths that your birth can possibly take. And this is something that we learned from um, Catherine, who's based out of Australia, and we'll link her information in the bottom. It's called birth mapping. And so what it is, is you, there's three paths. The first path can be your primary plan, which for most of us is going to be a vaginal birth. You have your contingent plan, which is for most of us probably going to be a cesarean birth. And then your fast plan. Your birth went a lot faster than you anticipated. You didn't make it to your birth location. Or maybe you did make it to your birth location and things just like happen super rapidly. And so what you do is you go down each paths in each way and then you kind of explore all the different variations. Now, obviously, you can't do like every single scenario possible. But for like a vaginal birth, you can think, okay, I can either go into spontaneous labor or it can be induced. Those are really the two ways that you can go into labor. And so you think about, okay, if I have a spontaneous labor, these are my preferences in that scenario. Let's say you want to have an unmedicated birth. Okay, I want to go into spontaneous labor. I don't want to have an unmedicated birth with zero or very low interventions. And I want to push my baby out of 10 minutes and then be good to go. That would be ideal. <laughs> um, but let's say your labor takes a lot longer. Well, now you need to kind of determine, okay, if this happens, then maybe I do want to get an epidural. Let's say my labor's four days long. I am going to be a little sleepy. I think I'm going to get an epidural at that point. Or maybe like you have a lot of back labor or something is going on. And so you can just essentially explore what maybe your pain relief options are depending on the scenario. Now, if you have to be induced, you want to kind of explore, okay, what are the different options for induction? And with induction, there are a lot more interventions involved that maybe you want to educate yourself on which induction options are even available to you and which ones you would want to say yes to. And then if you did get, say, like they did want to break your water, would you want to get an epidural in that instance? If they started Pitocin, would you want to get an epidural if they were going to start Pitocin? Or maybe you would be more open to other pain relief options. And with an induction, like what are you going to eat? Are you going to be able to eat? Are you going to be able to drink? Like other interventions and birth options involved with that. Like maybe you wouldn't have thought about those things if you were just planning on going into spontaneous labor. And then like you're in a hospital. So preparing for that C-section is also important. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of people report after their birth for an unexpected C-section is that they didn't even think about a C-section and what all of those options would entail. And so they were completely blindsided by not just the C-section, but like all of the options and decisions that they had to make to make this C-section a birth experience that they wanted. And that's only if they even knew what their options were for a C-section. And so when you don't know what your options are, you don't have any. And you're just kind of at the mercy of whoever's supporting your birth. And I like to go into births and I like to believe that most people that are supporting births are coming from a really good place based on their experience with birth. And so no one is trying to like ruin your experience, but they may have a different perspective and they may be more focused on keeping you like healthy and alive as opposed to being like really concerned with your experience and whether or not it's a positive or negative experience. And so when you know what your options are and you've already explored your preferences in different scenarios, so you explore what your preferences are if you have a vaginal birth. 
if you go into spontaneous labor, if your labor maybe isn't going the way you expected, if you have to get induced or your labor has to get augmented or if you have to have a C-section, if you've already explored what your preferences are in each of those scenarios, it helps you maintain the decision-making authority during your birth because you still know this is what I want and this is what I know my options are and this is what I would like to do in this moment. And your partner's also gonna know what your preferences are in different scenarios. And you could already have a conversation with them on like kind of what they're comfortable with as well. So for me as the person that's giving birth, my comfort level, I needed to make sure that it was also stuff that like my husband was okay with, that he was gonna feel comfortable and confident supporting. And so for us at the end of our most recent pregnancy, I had to go in for an NST or the neonatal stress test because I was at 41 weeks just to make sure that me and Sophie were doing well. At the ultrasound, I was nervous because like, well, what happens if they say that something's wrong or things are not going well? Like, should I should I just ignore it so I could still have a home birth? And then it was like, well, no, like neither of us would be comfortable with still giving birth at home if something was wrong. And that was something that he and I talked about of like, what is our comfort level if there's like an alteration to our primary plan. When it comes to planning for birth, we need to look beyond this like linear birth plan of like, these are the things that I want. This is my yes list. This is my no list. And rather explore the different paths and avenues that our birth can take and our preferences in those scenarios. Because for me, like Pitocin is not always a yes. Like depending on the situation is going to be whether or not I want Pitocin. Now, in certain situations, I may want it and others I may not. And so understanding what those situations are and helping me kind of explore, even though this is maybe not my primary birth intervention or option that I want, these are some reasons why I may want this or may not want this. And that also gives you an option to have a conversation with your provider ahead of time. And so really big fans of taking your birth path or your birth map and your birth plan and showing it to your provider during your pregnancy. Like you don't have to wait until you show up at triage. You don't have to wait until you're like 38 or 40 week appointment. You can start bringing up things at your appointments throughout your pregnancy so that you can understand what options are available for you at your birth location, what options maybe you didn't know were available, and then also what the comfort level of your provider is with supporting you in your preferences. Because you may find out that they're like totally not on board with the things that you're wanting for your birth. And maybe you either need to understand why these are things that they don't support. Maybe they're not safe things to do or maybe they're not realistic things to do. Or maybe you just need to find a new birth location and birth provider. And so it kind of lets you kind of gauge whether or not you or your provider are a good match. And then also helps them be a part of your decision making. And it creates this like shared decision making together so that you could have a better idea of what your options are. So thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you want your own birth planning template, we do have a freebie. We'll link it in the show notes. It's a fillable PDF with all sorts of different options. You can print it out and show it to your provider. It also helps you kind of number your preferences in each situation as well. It comes with a birth packing list or hospital packing list for you and your partner. And so you can grab that freebie in the show notes below. And thank you for joining us and listening to this episode. If you want more support throughout your pregnancy, you can join our prenatal fitness programs, childbirth education courses. If you want more support after your birth, we do have postpartum fitness courses and education courses as well. If you're a professional, we offer birth worker and fitness trainer courses so you can learn from us while earning CEUs. And you can explore all of our courses on our website and use code STORY10 for 10% off as a thank you for listening. 
If you enjoy this episode, please follow our podcast. If you do not already, then you can be notified when we release new episodes. We release new episodes every Wednesday and new birth stories every Friday. So thank you for listening to this week's episode. We'll catch you on Wednesday for our next educational podcast and then next Friday for another birth story.